Grace doesn't exist, right? I mean, we know this. I'm not sure if the general public probably understands this. There's no such thing as race. There's no biological race, right? Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is... Imagining a new normal. Towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society Remotely. We are absolutely buzzing to be joined by David Waring, who is an academic teaching fellow based at Royal Holloway and who is a specialist on Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. Like these sorts of episodes, Tia, I don't know about you, but they're the ones that I find the most interesting because it's where we sort of have a very, very like minimal knowledge. And David's the sort of person that sort of comes and shows us how much the media has just portrayed this not accurate reality of what this situation is like it's an area that no one really knows what's going on it's kind of like northern ireland it's a big issue people know about this the kind of surface level but no one really wants to go any deeper because it seems very complex welcome to the show david hello hello oh yeah oh yeah david i guess it would be really good to just tell our listeners about how you got into this subject area that's a good question I mean, I've always been, I was interested in politics since I was a kid. Interested in politics with a kind of racialised lens because I grew up in Kent, very, very white area, um, very racist area. Um, And so I was forced to understand the world from a kind of racialised minority lens and to think about, because I was brought up in a family that was very political, um, or politically aware, if not politically sort of active, I had those kind of senses switched on very, very early. My mum's from uh, Mauritius, old British colony. And so I've always had this interest in going from my early experiences of racism and having that filtered through that kind of awareness of history and empire. I've always had this interest in British foreign relations, imperial legacy. And so I think I've always been interested in the Middle East in particular, not because I've got any family or personal connection there, but just because that seems to be like the kind of, you know, the key area of contest of Western imperialism and British imperialism today. So I was kind of drawn to the Middle East for that reason. The Arab uprisings, 2011, when, you know, there's mass uprisings, people calling for democracy, the fall of these various regimes. I find that particularly interesting. That, re- that really, really sort of attracted me intellectually and politically. And part of the reason was, well, you know, we always think about Britain as being, or we're, we're told that Britain is this kind of force for not just good in the world, but specifically for democracy, human rights, liberal principles, etc., etc. And yet, when you look at the Arab uprising, so you've got a situation where there's people in the Middle East calling for democracy in their thousands and their millions, and coming up against regimes which are armed to the teeth by the West, including by the British. And that kind of dissonance between the way we talk, you know, traditionally think about Britain or the way we're told to think about Britain and what was actually happening on the ground, where Britain was on the opposite side of the dynamic to what we'd um, been told it should be, that that really grabbed me. And at the time, I was looking for a PhD topic. I was kind of floundering around looking for a, a way to 
get my interest in British foreign policy more specific. And then the Arab uprisings happen. I thought, right, that's it. That's what I'm doing. That's, those are, these are going to be my case studies. Um, and I ended up studying Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states because those states, those six Gulf monarchies, I mean, they're basically the bastion of conservatism and authoritarianism in the region, and they have been armed to the teeth for decades by the British and the Americans. So I thought, why? This is interesting. If you want to explore that dissonance between the way Britain present, presents itself and the way it actually is in terms of democracy and human rights, that's the thing to look at. And what I really wanted to understand is, you know, what's the basis of this relationship and how does it play out? Like, you know, why is, why is Britain, you know, in, in this part of the world, what's the nature of this relationship with these states? How does the relationship manifest itself? And I wanted to try and map it, do you know what I mean? I wanted to try and make sense of it, like map the deep structures of Britain's alliances um, with these regimes. At a purely kind of layman version, the kind of interpretation we have of being involved in the area is purely for oil, because that's how it's portrayed in the media, well, how my interpretation is that basically it wasn't a racialized thing that why they're monarchies, it's because of their cultural values. They're monarchies, they're just, they're anti-democratic, so they can never be, they can only be monarchies on that step to modernity. So on that step to modernity, they've kind of stopped, kind of similar idea they had with um, how kind of like John Stuart Mill looked at China. It was on its way to democracy, but it stagnated and it got stopped at this particular level. And right. for the, the Arabs, they got stuck at monarchy. Yeah. That's how yeah. I, that's how that's I understood bullshit. it. But that's bullshit. Like, we know that that's bullshit. As in, oh, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what's but, interesting. But, like, that is what is consistently presented. And David has literally shown in his book, like, actually. But it's, it's interesting. Some some academics, like Bernard Lewis, he would, they run, so he said that crisis in Islam is one of the reasons why they haven't made that jump to modernity. There's a crisis in their religion. It's this cultural thing that's holding them back from becoming true democracies. And it's something that, not only the media play it, which is quite superficial, but academics will play that song. Quite interesting in that paper, Dave, that you wrote, the idea of Orientalism, this notion of seeing the East in a particular way, how it's played out in different forms. That's what's really cool and important about David's work is that it's not necessarily that saying that stuff is, in fact, bullshit. It's about saying that Britain is no better, if not worse. It's just the, it's just the way we present ourselves, how transparent mm-hmm. we are about what we do. I was going to say what I've really, I hope, tried to do with the book and the subsequent research is get us away from this idea that the authoritarianism and the violence and the human rights abuses in, in that part of the world are external to the West. Mm-hmm. There's something separate and distinct from us coming out of a separate and distinct culture, which we're very different from, if not opposite to. And that actually, the authoritarianism in, in the region is our authoritarianism too. I mean... I guess what might be helpful for your listeners maybe is if we come to race in a moment and if we start with Britain's relationship with these states as it's built up over history, I can try and sort of get through that briefly. Just just so we can can help people to contrast what actually happened with what's... David, you're picking up up on mine and T's biggest weakness, our overexcitedness about... (laughs) (laughs) So I read it, I was like, I need to talk about this. Sorry, go on. I know, yeah. <laughs> go on, David. Right. Let's, let's try and set it up for people. I mean, so Britain comes into the Gulf, first of all, 
in the early part of the 19th century. And oil isn't discovered until like 100 years later, early part of the 20th century. The reason Britain goes in initially is because, you know, the heart of Britain's empire is India. And Britain's trying to set up a kind of buffer zone around the Indian subcontinent to protect India from the rival imperial powers like the Russians and the French. So the Britons, the British are in, they're in Afghanistan, they're in what's now Iran, and they're in the Gulf as well, projecting sort of naval power into the Gulf. And um, what, they, what they do is set up a, a sort of network of treaties with the various small local rulers in the Gulf. So that like, what we now know as Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the UAE, you know, the UAE includes like the parts of Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Amman. All these small monarchs were, the British allied themselves to them, built them up, gave them security, but they made them into their protectorates. And they helped those states to form. And then later on, oil was discovered. And by the way, later on, the Saudi kingdom is created. And that's in the early part of the 20th century. So, you know, in, in that discourse, you hear all about how, oh, the, you know, ancient traditions and ancient values in, in, in the region. Saudi Arabia is less than 100 years old, right? So Saudi Arabia is created when the House of Saud, this royal family, together with kind of armed groups allied to the House of Saud. They burst out the Central Arabian Desert and they conquer the Arabian Peninsula, or as much of it as they can. And they impose this really strict, like puritanical version of Islam on what is now Saudi Arabia. And this version of Islam, this particularly austere version of Islam, is alien to a lot of the peoples in, in, what is it? Is that Wahhabis? in, in this new country. Wahhabism, yeah. I mean, this is this is alien to a lot of the peoples in in this in this new country. Like the people on the um, on the west coast where Mecca and Medina are. I mean, these are much more sort of open cosmopolitan people. They used to be plugged into the rest of the world. This sort of austere Wahhabi rule is 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 really new to them. So they're coming under a new kind of oppression, not living under just normal tradition as far as they're concerned. And the British help the Saudis to consolidate their walls. They sell them arms, they give them a sort of financial allowance. And then oil comes online, the oil's discovered, and the British and the Americans gain control of these oil reserves, they exploit these oil reserves, and some of the, most of the money goes to British and American oil firms, but money is also given to these states so they can consolidate their wool. And the development of these states by which I mean the, the states in particular, like the apparatus of the state, the internal security forces, the military, the judicial system, the infrastructure, right? All of this is developed as authoritarian regimes with British and American assistance. The British and the Americans are there throughout, including when grassroots forces, sometimes linked to labor unions, sometimes linked to Arab nationalism, anti-colonial nationalism, when these forces bubble up and, and say, look, what we actually want here is national control of our own resources, we don't want the West exploiting our national resources. And we also want to say in how our countries are run, we want a constitutional monarchy, some form of democracy. The British and the Americans collude with these monarchies in suppressing all of that, right? So the whole apparatus of, of state repression, of torture, state violence or authoritarianism develops over these hundred years 
as a joint project between these Arab monarchies, the Saudis, the Bahrainis, the Kuwaitis, etc., etc., and the British and the Americans. So it's, it's absolutely not a case of liberal democratic Britain and America turning up in the Middle East and finding all these monarchies that have just been there for centuries and just doing their best to conduct international relations with peoples who are very different. The, authoritarianism in, in the region is a product of the collusion between the West, the elites of the West and the, uh, and, and the region itself. It's really important to stress that because, and this is where this whole discourse about, um, this whole sort of racialized discourse comes in that, that, that we touched on a moment ago. What the British and, and, and the West, Westerners generally have tried to do, and this goes through academia, this goes through the dominant discourse generally, is, um, is try and separate out that alliance I've just described and instead talk about like, try and juxtapose two very essentialized cultures and Edward Said, as, as loads of your listeners will be familiar with already, Edward Said is, is, is the guy who mapped this all out, the Palestinian scholar Edward Said, who read a huge amount of this scholarship in the 19th and early 20th century and developed this critique of Orientalism. And what Saeed was saying is, look, when you read the way Westerners talk about the Middle East, you can see something that they're doing, which is they're presenting the Middle East and the West as two kind of very separate, essentialized binaries and almost like mirror opposites of each other. So the West is progressive, it's rational, and uh, while the Middle East is, is, is mired in superstition and it's irrational, by separating those things out and by presenting itself as civilised and the Middle East as uncivilised, Western elites were able to tell themselves, well, actually, when we go into this region, we're doing these guys a favour. You know, they're backward, they're not capable of, of progress, and we were able to bring progress to them. So you can tell yourself this whole story. I think this is really important. The argument I made, I sent you a sort of draft paper um, that I've been working on. I'm not a psychologist, but my, my strong sense with powerful people is that they're not sort of rubbing their hands and glee and cackling and knowing what it is they're doing is so evil, but doing it anyway. They convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. And they need an ideology to convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. And, and racist ideology, is really, really fucking useful to these people, do you know what I mean? Because they're able to say, it may feel like we're doing the wrong thing here, but when you think about it, we're actually doing the right thing, because these people are really bad and they need our help, you know? Um, okay, so it's a, um, these, these countries are, you know, they're being ruled by authoritarian regimes, but that's kind of their culture, you know? And if we can find in that region authoritarians who are committed to some kind of reform and modernization and we support them then actually we really are on the side of democracy you know so, so they can whitewash the nature of this relationship for their own benefit as much as for the public's benefit by using these kind of racialized distinctions of us and them. Do you know what there's so much right thinking about broader racism so we spoke to Brendan McKeever and yeah. was, he talks about this kind of this reservoir anti-Semitism that exists, right? Mm. These tropes that you allude to just now about yeah. this kind of idea of reforming or the white man's burden, helping these mm. states, it exists in the ether. So Islamophobia, it's so easy to pick it, it apart. You yeah. draw upon these and so it becomes a common sense. 
So majority of people think it's it's just a normal a normal discourse, a normal way of carrying out business. Who they see as being sometimes a bit less fortunate, a bit more uncivilized. But surely, I have all these uncivilized people, I could find someone to deal with kind of mentality so it's almost like a common sense thing it is and it's it's, it's really embedded you know like over centuries mm-hmm. this stuff is built up and so you know in a specific instance say there's some scandal around britain's relationship with these states like in you know in 2020 there's so much for you to draw on you know mm-hmm. and when you used to, when a british politician says well these are countries with different values that's all you have to say you know, mm-hmm. and you, you, you'll trigger all these assumptions that people have that have been built up over time, that they've absorbed from their culture, they've absorbed from their own education. This stuff is really embedded. I mean, you know, people talk about racism as though it's an ignorance. It's not. It's learned. We've learned how to see the world in that way. When you see things as racially coded, mm-hmm. I don't think most people would see or map onto that, that region that issues of race. The common sense definition of race is when talking to black people, or other regions, the Middle East, it's how it's mapped onto the area. How we talk about in mainstream discourse is of cultural values, right? But I quite like how you shifted that idea and said, when we talk about race, you're looking at social processes. Could you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, let me try and, I I, I can try and link those two things together if you like. So so let's start with what you were saying, Ted. I mean, you know, I think this is something that we understand if, we're doing race in an academic context and, and I'm not yeah. sure that the general public sort of has, has had the opportunity to, to have this discussion and really see it in the same way as we see it. Race doesn't exist, right? I mean, we know this. I'm not sure if the general mm-hmm. public probably understands this. There's no such thing as race. There's no biological race, right? And what people associate with racism is a prejudice towards separate biological races. I mean, racism hasn't been that for half a century. Really, I mean, we talk about race now as a social construct, i.e. it's an invention. You ascribe to a certain group a a set of essential characteristics, you know. These people are like this. It's just in their nature, you know. And because you're no longer talking about biology the way you used to, because, you know, (laughs) Nazism sort of discredited (laughs) a a little little bit, you know. It's, It's not a polite kind of racism. Now you talk about people's culture. Instead, and you say, well, you know, it's just it's just in their it's just in their nature, not their biological nature. Racist discourse, in terms of think about it, in, in terms of a discourse that posits perhaps two groups of incommensurate characteristics, right? So on the one hand, Westerners and their love of freedom and democracy, and on the other hand, maybe Muslims or maybe Arabs with their alleged their alleged sort of superstition, innate authoritarianism, sort of rejection of rationality. I mean, that's the kind of racism that's been mobilised today. I mean, you know, the advice give to any of your listeners who are having an argument with someone who tells them, I'm not a racist about Islam, Islam's not a race. Well, just ask them, what is a race? And, and, and you know, just sit back and, and let them try and explain it to you. And there's no explanation because <laughs> there's no such thing as race, except what we construct as a race. This is basic stuff to, to to us in academia, but I'm not sure I understood it properly until I read the academic literature. I think that's something that's really worth crystallising that idea and getting it out there, that, you know, culture can become a proxy for race. You know? Yeah. It's about power, isn't it, and how that is operationalised. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking, David, and I think you did touch on it a little bit in terms of thinking about how embedded these ideas are, these notions, these ways of talking about the region. When I'm watching like the Tories or when I'm watching like anyone that is in the British government, when I'm watching them talk about the Gulf states, right, do Mm. they know that they're talking shit? (laughs) Yes, yes, I do, yeah. Is there an awareness, the things that they're saying it is bedded in myth, doesn't necessarily tell the full story and this is the history behind it. Is the lack of knowledge about the actual history and the, the relationship, is it just not known or do people know and it's about trying to resell? Like, I don't doubt yeah. that most that they're all dickheads, but I'm just, as in the British government, but like, how do they, do they understand what they're doing? <laughs> I mean, this is the it's, this is the billion dollar question, isn't it? Like, yeah. when they when they trot out these lines, are they doing it deliberately as part of their kind of communication strategy, or do they actually believe it? And I think it's just it's just really really hard to tell because we're not like psychic, we're not you know psychologists, psychologists we're social scientists. So I mean, the way I look at it is, I think it's more plausible to believe. It seems more plausible to me that rather than saying, oh, these people are very, very cynical, and every time they say in defence of Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia, well, it's just in that state's cultural essence to be like this. Rather than think that they do that deliberately to con us, I think they believe it. I think this is stuff, as we were saying a moment ago, that's so embedded in Britain's national discourse, especially in the elite discourse, it seems to me just kind of racism. It's just, it's part of the elite ideology. It's the dominant discourse, it's the dominant ideology in this country. And so, yeah, I think a lot of them probably do believe, most of them. So someone like Trump is transactional. Like, if I do X amount of moves, we will lose X amount of jobs or we lose this big order. Mm -hmm. And because the amount of arms they're buying, the industries that they're supporting, in transactional terms, people can overlook a lot of issues, right? With regimes, because they'll say, look, it makes sense on the bottom line and when Trump speaks in that language, people overlook, like, they might be heading people or whatever it will be. And so I think it's a mixture of the kind of hegemonic racist discourse, but also the idea that we're intimately linked economically. These, our countries yeah. are linked. And there's a yeah. there's a symbiotic relationship here of, of capital exchange going along. Bringing it more close to home, T, don't you find it, like, fascinating yet disturbing that you can have politicians talking about, like, Yemen, for example, and mm-hmm. it, seem, it seems like in the way they're talking about it, that they think that they're separate from it. How much arms we sell, how interlinked we are with Saudi Arabia, like that level of dissonance, it seems insane. Like the more I learn about this stuff, the more I'm like, why did this not get spoken about? Like, it's just... When you say to someone, do you know about Yemen? They're like, what? Like most people don't understand. Or, or it's something it, over that, there. Or it's something yeah, over there. Link. Even the people that know, quote unquote, what's going on or ha- what the different capitals that David talks about. So the different levels of investment and the different mm-hmm. trade relationships we have with Saudi Arabia, for example. Even those people that know seem to distance themselves from what is happening. And I just want to understand yeah. like how purposeful is that? Like, and I guess it sort of draws to like, categories of human like do you do they just not see these people as human beings like is it that easy to switch off this is a fuckery should we talk about Yemen because I think I think I think by touching on Yemen 
Chantel, you've really like touched on this is this is the one that challenges me the most. Like the way we talk or rather don't talk about Yemen seems to me to be so much of a problem. And a problem to which so much of the answer, but I need to think through exactly how this works. So much of the answer has to do with race. So maybe we should bring your listeners up to speed a little bit on what's happening in Yemen and then we can get into what's racialized about it. Because as you say, people don't know. This is a war that's been going on for five years. Uh, well, five and a half, and um, about six months into the civil war in Yemen, the Saudis and the Emiratis weighed in to back the side that they prefer in the Yemeni civil war. And the way they have waged that war is through Saudi aerial bombardment and, um, and also a blockade on the country. Now, there's no good guys in this war, and I'm not trying to pretend that they are, but I'm talking about the Saudi and the Emirati involvement because that's the side that the British and the Americans have been banned. So the Saudi bombing of Yemen has been completely indiscriminate. And this is all well documented by the UN, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Save the Children, numerous reports documenting systematic violations of international human, humanitarian law, bombing schools, bombing hospitals, bombing camps with displaced people, bombing clinics, even when they've been given the, the, the coordinates of the clinic and been told, please don't bomb this, it's a clinic. They'll hit it twice, they'll hit it once, they'll wait for the first responders to come and then they'll hit it again, sort of thing Al-Qaeda used to do in, in Iraq. They'll hit residential homes, they'll hit weddings, they'll hit funerals, and they've been doing this consistently for five years. And then, and, and Saudi bombing is responsible for about two-thirds of the deaths in the war. We're talking about tens of thousands of people. And then on top of that, you've got a blockade on the country imposed by the Saudis and the Emiratis. Actually, the Emiratis quit the war recently, so it's just the Saudis now on the, on the, on the sort of western side. A blockade on the country, which Yemen's the poorest country in the Middle East, right? blockaded by the richest countries in the Middle East. And when you blockade a country that's not just poor, but import-dependent, you know exactly what's going to happen. And what you predict would happen has actually happened. So the economy's collapsed and the, you know, the public health system's collapsed. And the result has been widespread hunger, um, the outbreak of diseases like cholera, history's worst outbreak of cholera. According to Save the Children, and this is, I think, the most striking statistic I know of in the whole situation, according to Save the Children a couple of years ago, at a conservative estimate, 85,000 infant children, as children under the age of five, have died of starvation or preventable disease in Yemen, largely as a result of that blockade. Um, this, so this is a man-made humanitarian disaster. It's the worst humanitarian disaster in the world. That's the sort of title given to it by, by the UN. And what's crucial, I think, for your listeners to understand, and what I don't think is sufficiently understood by any means in Britain generally, is that this war could not be waged without British and American support. And the British role in this is not trivial. So, as I've mentioned, this is a war being fought largely for aerial bombardment, right? And the, and the blockade of the country as well is sustained by, you know, it's partially an aerial blockade as well as a naval blockade. The, the weapons, the big weapon systems that the Saudis have, so these warplanes like the, the Eurofighter Typhoon, the Tornado, etc., etc., these are supplied by the British and the Americans. And like, I mean, half the Saudi Royal Air Force is supplied by the British, including this key jet, the Eurofighter Typhoon. This is the key point. 
those jets don't fly about British support, right? Those Euroflight typhoons that New Labour sold them, they can't fly about British support because part of the contract under which those jets are sold is that the British will continue to supply components and spare parts, ammunition, uh, maintenance of the jets, maintenance on the ground, training for the pilots. So, you know, when a wedding is bombed or a clinic is bombed, it will often be um, a British-made bomb dropped from a British-made plane flown by a British-trained pilot and maintained on the ground by British technicians. So this violence, and this is the thing I'll go back, just to link back to a point um, I made earlier, this is not their violence any more than it's their authoritarianism. It's our violence. Um, and, and so then we get onto this puzzle, which you alluded to, Shata, which is like, how is it that we as a country can enable the creation of the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe, can be absolutely actively complicit in the war crime of the start, because that's what it is, deliberate starvation. As far as I can make out, it is deliberate. If it is deliberate, it's a war crime. And the British, the French, and the Americans are, um, are complicit in that. How can it be in this country that our government could be complicit in the creation of the world's worst humanitarian disaster, the killing of tens of thousands of people, the starving to death of 85,000 infant children? And we don't even talk about it. We spent two or three years talking about Brexit. You know, we can preoccupied with all these other issues and as you said yourself you tell you, you say to someone what's happening in Yemen they don't know now what is going on there I think there's a whole bunch of things going on but I think race has to be part of it I think part of it is that we have the racialized discourse we talked about a moment ago which is that you know why are we supporting this terrible regime oh well you know it's just in their culture but we're supporting the most modern elements within that culture the kingdom so actually we're doing the right thing by supporting them. there's that there's you know well okay this stuff is happening but it's Yemenis it's just black and brown people we don't care about then you know we have to say that out loud but that's what's going on um this disregard for these people's lives there's another aspect which is Initially, when this war started and all this criticism was coming out, well, I mean, some criticism was coming out, the British would say, well, yeah, it seems that the Saudis are making a few mistakes. It's all quite regrettable. And what they need is training. And we're on hand to provide the training to make sure this stuff doesn't happen again. So can you see in that, in that little bit of discourse how the British are presenting themselves as the civilised people they're presenting the Saudi regime as backwards. And this idea that we'll provide training to their pilots and that will make it better is kind of a, you know, we just need to civilise them a little bit and then they'll be able to do it properly. Listen, these people have been trained. These pilots have been trained by the British for 30, 40 years. You know, it's not a lack of training. The lie is that it's an absence of Western training that's, that's led to these things happening. Well, they're still happening. You know, five years later, if it was just a, a lack of training, irrespective of the fact that the training has been going on for 30 years before anyway. So, you know, I think racism appears in, in all these different ways. But, you know, when I, what, the, the thing that really strikes me with this issue is that it's not just the media and it's not just the, the right wing. 
I mean, it's progressive and left-wing people as well. And it's not that they don't care, but we don't talk about it to the extent we should, you know. And that I find that I find harder. And I don't want to think that that's racism, but I wonder whether some kind of soft racism is working there to some degree, at least, to the extent that we're not taking these people's lives seriously. You know? I think I think it, I think it ties into racism, but I also think it ties into how the West perceives itself, like notions of each nation is sovereign, the idea of self-determination. These things are quite tightly bound up in those things. Look at the kind of collusion of, of Western power. It's a continuation of that imperial legacy. So in Liberia, the CIA are helping and financing and training Charles Taylor's army. In Nigeria, all around the world, post-1945, there's still an imperial presence in these countries. But because mm-hmm. the, because of the USA is the, is the hegemon and they don't like colonialism per se, Countries influence other countries through these kind of supports. So like in in France, in Indochina, in the Battle of Dembian Few, and all these kind of places there, you still have this kind of training of the kind of barbaric people in yeah. Western warfare. So even when you can go back to like Rook's Drift and the Zulus arming the Africans with guns and training them with guns rather than using spears, there's an idea that the West is, our job is to help, in inverted commas, these people. Yeah, yeah, and we don't, yeah, and we don't want to get get involved in their development. So I think when Harold Macmillan gave, but they're deeply know, but, like, they're, of course they're, they're deeply involved. But, but, the like, so but the narrative, the narrative you want to portray is like these people were helping you on your way. So mm. I think Harold Macmillan, when I think when he said when he got what colony he gave back, he said like we were always going to give it back, but now you're ready. Now you're ready to take <laughs> on yeah, the mantle yeah. of civilization. You know, when we talk about. Violence in the global south, and we talk about issues like security. Um, you know, it is, it is tied in with these deeper racialized ideas of insecurity being something that ha- happens out there, and us being a force of security and a force of stability and a force of modernity, and and violence in the global south being something to do with the nature of the global south and the nature of these societies and us playing a benign, civilising, modernising role. So that stuff can be so embedded that I think people just aren't capable of conceiving that actually that's not how it works at all. And in the Yemen case, it's not that we're playing a moderating or a civilising. We're playing an enabling role in these atrocities. These these are our atrocities too. There's a really interesting... um, sort of comparison to be made, and I keep encouraging people to do to do their undergrad and master's dissertations on this, um, a, a comparison to be made between the way we talked about Syria and the way we've talked about Yemen. So these two catastrophic wars coming out of the Arab uprising, so both kind of, you know, Arab uprisings mutating out, of, you know, there's a state backlash against people protesting for democracy, and it all turns nasty and you end up with war. And regional powers and foreign powers, international powers, pile in and sustain a war. And it turns into a humanitarian catastrophe. Two cases, Syria and Yemen. Now, when Syria was, was at its worst a few years ago, like, you know, people in the liberal press, people in broadcast media, academics, politicians, they wouldn't shut up about it. You know, they cared about that. And the reason they were capable of talking about it, and the reason they were preoccupied about it, it seems to me, is because they saw an opportunity in their mind for the West to do good and come in and ride to the rescue. 
you know, and then they were very upset when the West didn't come in and write to the rescue, um, you know, because that, surely that's our role to be the magnificent sort of, you know, humanitarian interveners to, to, to use the sort of academic phrase. So they could, they could, they could take that crisis and all that killing and feed it through their ideology and come out of a story and come out with, with a position. Whereas in Yemen, who are, you going to who, who are you going to carry out your humanitarian intervention against? If there was going to be a humanitarian intervention carried out, it would be against our allies, you know, because we're, you know, there's no good guys in, in, in this conflict, but I mean, the, the, the side carrying out the Assad-like atrocities, the side playing the Assad role, is our allies doing it with our help. And so it just, it just doesn't fit into that whole framing of you know the west being the source of humanitarianism um coming in to you know to separate out the natives and get them to behave themselves so those kind of i think that racialized framing of how what we're like and what they're like it, 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 it people have that as their lens for understanding these issues and it can't explain yemen to them they're not capable of, of reading that you know it baffles them. So interesting. Yeah. Quite interesting how you see that kind of this kind of duality kind of seep through into kind of popular culture. So I was just thinking to myself, like the movie Iron Man, it came out in 2008, and the, the main yeah. character is selling arms to both sides, and they are characterized as Middle Eastern people. But people won't even pick up on that. That's that's yeah. actually reflecting what's happened right now. But that duality is always there. But it's it's hard to sell. It's a hard thing to sell to people. The, the fact that this stuff comes up in popular culture, and let, let's face all it, the time. Look, all the time, this Orientalist worldview comes up in popular culture constantly. And when I'm teaching Orientalism, I teach a course on, on the political economy of the Middle East and how kind of, you know, modern Middle East was born out of, out of imperialism. And one of the first weeks in that course is let's talk about Orientalism and let's just sweep away our initial assumptions before we get into this topic seriously. So I teach the students Orientalism, get them to read a bit of Edward Said. And one of the exercises we do in class is now you guys understand what Orientalism is and these and these sort of this binary, the East is like this and the West is like that. Think about examples of that in popular culture, like TV, film, etc. Mm -hmm. etc. And that comes, you know, sometimes when you're teaching, like it's like getting blood out of stone, you can't get, you know, no one's going to say, and you, you've got all these different techniques for getting people to talk. Yeah. That one, you, you need no techniques, just ask them that question, and they will, they will talk about it to the end of time. They've got so many mm. examples, and it really switches students on. Um, I mean, you can think of so many things. Think of Game of Thrones. Like, I don't know if people remember when... Careful now, David. Uh, Care careful now. It's one of our favourite shows. Careful. Careful. Yeah, but... How many of your... So Orientalist Game of Thrones, yeah. though. Yes. Like, how many yeah. of your favourite shows are problematic? You know, loads of your favourite shows are problematic. All of them. I think one of the worst is Homeland. Right, see, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad. Damien Lewis. Um, yeah, not good. And is in, yeah, so, in terms of being a big perpetuator of this stuff. I, I so think a good one is Messiah. Messiah? Messiah. Messiah is pretty good. Like, you'll, you'll see, like, uh, about, if you want to see anti-Semitic, uh, Orientalists, <laughs> all of them in one show. The reason I light on things like Game of Thrones is that, like, if, if it happens in fiction... <laughs> 
Do you know what I mean? <laughs> if, if you see Orientalist tropes in situations where we're not talking about like factual places, then that shows, I think, how deeply embedded it is. Like that stuff where um, Daenerys Targaryen frees these slaves, and like you've got mm-hmm. this blonde white monarch coming to this constant, she's been exiled to this, like, you know, it's clearly in the global south, and she, and she frees these dark skinned slaves. And at the end of one of these, it's Khaleesi, isn't it? At the end of um, mm-hmm. one of these episodes, Um, and the capitalist aspects of it are really important. 
and this is kind of how it works. So, yeah, I mean, people. Let's talk about it historically, and then we get into the get into the myths. So, oil was discovered in the early part of the 20th century, and it quickly becomes as the, as the global economy industrializes, oil becomes the lifeblood of the world economy, right? So. Oil, obviously, you use it for fuel, um, transport, but you know petrochemicals coming out of oil are, are, are massively important as well in terms of pesticides. Um, plastic is an old derivative, right? I mean, synthetic fibers, all kinds of things are rooted in oil. So oil is there everywhere in terms of modern capitalism. And who controls oil as strategic power in the world economy? And, and who sells oil? Is, is, is a, anyone who sells oil is able to make fantastic amounts of money. Now, in the, in the modern day, what's important for the British in terms of their relationship with this oil producing region is not the supply of oil to Britain, it's recycling the oil wealth into British capitalism and, 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 um, and, and the British arms industry as well. So actually, Britain doesn't consume that much oil from the Middle East. I mean, most of Britain's oil comes from, um, well, comes from the North Sea. Um, oil's part of our energy mix. We use gas and a bunch of other things as well. Uh, I think it's only like 4% of our oil comes from Saudi Arabia. Most Gulf oil actually goes east, not west. It doesn't go to Europe or North America or Britain. It goes off to China and Japan, South Korea, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the money that the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia make from selling oil, that's what's interesting to the British and to the Americans. Now, for the British, there's a couple of ways that works. There's three ways that, that that money can be used for. One, well, let's think about the nature of British capitalism. So British capitalism is now run along a neoliberal model, right? So it's dominated by, by finance. So we used to be a country where the emphasis was on manufacturing goods for export. And now we're an economy where the emphasis is on, um, on finance in the city of London. Right? And as a result of that shift, we've developed a trade deficit. You know? We're not selling goods for export anymore. Um, or, or we are, but much less. And so when you've got a trade deficit, that puts downward pressure on your currency. So you've got a specific challenge, which is to find export markets and boost your exports. And the Saudis and the Emiratis and the, and the Qataris, at least until recently, absolutely swimming in cash, right? So Britain's got a trade surplus with those states because they're so rich and they buy all sorts of things from the British, often it's services like accountancy, um, education, healthcare, uh, you know, consultancy on expertise on infrastructure projects, construction. Um, so there's a, you can build up a trade surplus and that will offset your overall trade deficit with the rest of the world. If you've still got a trade deficit, the other thing you can do is finance a trade deficit by attracting capital inflows from the rest of the world into the city of London. And one of the biggest sources of net capital inflows to the British economy is Saudi Arabia. I worked out uh, when I was researching my book that in, a, in last year, last financial year before Brexit, 20% of net capital inflows into the city of London came from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabian wealth going into British uh, banks, buying um, British um, equities, shares. Um, 
And you know, your listeners know all about the big golf purchases in the British economy. You know, the purchase of um, Manchester City by um, Abu Dhabi, the purchase, um, which is they're, they're trying to get it through at the moment, although I'm not sure it's going to work out. The attempted purchase of Newcastle United. But there's all sorts of other things as well, money going into like Barclays Bank and the financial crisis was bailed out by Qatar, uh, not the British <laughs> government. It was Qatar who bailed out Barclays Bank. Um, so there's these, those are two different ways in which golf wealth, and it's you know, subtitle of my book is golf, why golf wealth matters to Britain. These are two different ways. So one, we've got the trade surplus with them, which is really valuable because we've got an overall trade deficit. Another is that we attract loads of capital into the city of London, which helps finance our trade deficit, props up the pound sterling. And the third thing, and this is really, really important, is the purchase of British arms. And the British made a strategic commitment around the end of World War II. It was at the end of World War II. It was clear that British power in the world is going to decline, We're going to lose their empire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How do we maintain ourselves? as a global military power after the loss of empire. Um, well, you need to have your own arms industry to do that. You're not, you're not a proper military power if you don't have your own arms industry. If you're using other people's arms, you're dependent on them for your military power, right? as, is, as is the case of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. So to have your own arms industry, I mean, that costs money. Developing all this high-tech kit costs money. And if you tax the public too much, the public will be like, well, hang on a minute, like, we've got you know, we've got shit healthcare and, you know, we've got bad standard of living. Why are we spending all this money on arms? You know, so the way you can, off, one way you can offset that is by selling some of the arms you make, right? And that can maintain your arms industry through arms exports. Okay. So if you want to sell some of the arms you make, you've got to find people who are willing to buy them. And a big challenge that the British have had since the end of the Cold War is that military spending worldwide is kind of going down, or at least Britain's ability to export its arms to the rest of the world is going down, except in the Gulf. And I've got this graph in my book which shows the value of arms sales to parts of the world that aren't the Gulf from Britain going down and down and down and down for 25 years. But the value of British arms to the Gulf, and specifically to Saudi Arabia, going steadily up to compensate to the extent that now about half of British arms sales go to Saudi Arabia, right? So it's not just a case here of we're making British arms companies money. It's more that these arms sales are sustaining the arms industry that Britain wants to maintain if it wants to be a global military power in the world. So you look at all of that, a really key, two key, key important things to say about it. One, this all evolves out of empire, right? So this set of really important international relations that Britain has is absolutely a legacy of empire, number one. And number two, the racialized discourse that we talked about in the first half of this podcast legitimizes this entire thing, right? So racialized, yeah, racialized discourse, the language you use, the way we understand who we are as British people, the way we understand who they are as, as, as Arabs or as Muslims or whatever, that, helps make all of this politically sustainable. So race and racialized discourse is playing a huge role still in Britain's foreign relations, which continue to be very, very, very imperialist. Given the current crisis that the, the world's been in pause, right? So mm. there's been, petrol has become worthless at some points in the crisis. Venezuela is having problems, so they're looking to import money even though they produce oil. Given the rise of China, international relations at the moment 
the old lines that it was drawn along seem to be wobbling. Yeah. And I don't know where, how would you see these elites reposition? Where do you see capital moving to now? For my friends in the city, they will say money. If you want, if you want to kind of live, you move east. So my friend lives in Hong Kong right now. Some of my mates are moving to some of the Saudi, um, Singapore or the UAE. That's where capital seems to be flowing. Mm. And so given that capital and the flow of capital determines or to some extent international relations, how do you see yeah. it all playing out now? Okay, it's really a big I'm, question. And I'm, glad, I'm glad you've asked me because I think it's, it's really important. Big security threat we've got coming towards us is, is a climate disaster. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we don't deal with this in the next 10 years, like little kids today, they're going to see horrors, you know, as human civilization mm-hmm. falls apart. And... Um, so that oil's going to stay in the ground. I mean, oil has been underneath this whole discussion, right? I mean, even though Britain doesn't import that much oil from the Gulf, it's, it's, it's oil wealth that's central to this whole relationship. But what if, the, what if the oil has to stay in the ground, you know? What if the choice is we have a decent future, some kind of decent future, human civilization just about survives, you know, it all goes to shit. And <laughs> it is all going to go to shit unless we keep that oil in the ground. If the oil stays in the ground, Gulf wealth disappears, you know. So the arms purchases stop. The capital investment coming from the Gulf to the to the city stops. Um, British exports to that part of the world. I mean, it doesn't all just stop, but it kind of shrivels, and it could shrivel quite quick. These regimes, their ability to prop themselves up, will fade away. Their value to the British and the Americans will fade away. I mean, you know, you need this racialized discourse because, frankly, it's so embarrassing that you're supporting these regimes who are committing mass murder, right? So the minute they don't have the money anymore, the minute they're not, um, you know, the oil's not being extracted and they're not developing this world, the minute that goes, I can, I can really see the US and the British dropping these states very quickly. There's nothing, there's nothing in it for them. Um, but I, did, I was going to say, can you, can you see Trump at the moment? So some of the literature I'm reading, you're seeing what they call decoupling. The Trump administration yeah. is trying to de- decouple um, flows capital flows from China and some to the Middle East and try to reconnect those manufacturing parts or those producing parts of those countries directly to the to America. So in the case of um Taiwan, for example, there's chip makers, Trump's trying to court them, trying to build factories in in the United States. So there mm. it seems elites are and I I'm trying to say to people right right now you could see capitalism reorganized. They're trying to decouple and yeah. recouple things around to try get around the, this very the very issue that they can see. David, that was absolutely brilliant. Like I could just keep talking and listening. Well, I keep talking <laughs> and listening to you speak for the hours. Like that was just unbelievable. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you thank you. And thank you, listeners. We'll be back again next week. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.